0: Hey there, thanks for tuning in today. Quick heads up this is a new type of show on Billion Dollar Moves, where once a month we dive deep into the deals and markets of the day. You're tuning in to Billion Dollar Moves Breakdown.
1: Gojek is now a very serious competitor, right, in Indonesia. It's going to be very hard for them to displace them. It's going to be very expensive for them to displace them. So, really, in Indonesia, the chance of them becoming a market leader is probably zero now, um, unless something dramatic happens to GoTo. So I think that was a mistake. And I think it's an irreversible mistake at this point.
0: By 2025, half of the world's billion-dollar companies will be founded in the emerging markets. And yet there is still much skepticism. What are the emerging markets really? And why invest now? Copycats localizes global players. Go to Group Grab, Baiju, who will emerge as the top challenger in Asia? SPACs, SPACs, and more SPACs. Is this the exit route for founders? Welcome to the Billion Dollar Moves Breakdown, where we unpack some of the hottest trends of the moment in startup and venture land, busting some myths with the brains and analysts behind the deals, so you can keep making billion dollar moves. Today in the hot seat, Mikhail Koso, investor at Wavemaker Partners, a cross border VC firm founded in 2003. With headquarters in LA and Singapore, WaveMaker has raised over $580 million across multiple funds with hits like Zilingo, MindBody, and SilentAid. Born half Pakistani, half Spanish, grew up in Pakistan, Dubai, Ethiopia, and now based in LA, we are in for a treat with Macau. Let's get started here in the billion dollar breakdown. Uh, Question number one is the case for emerging markets. and, And the key question is, why now?
1: On the public side, there's a lot of volatility in public markets. There's currency risk, there's money coming in and out. It's really something people do almost speculatively. But if you actually look at the public equity markets over time in India and China, the companies that are perhaps the best examples of emerging markets, there's been massive growth in the public equity markets, despite that volatility. And so, for example, in India, it's gone up by over 10,000% in basically 30 years. So if you had just bought an index and just did nothing, you you would have been up 10,000%. What's happening now is these economies are digitizing very rapidly. And, you know, they're going from agrarian rural economies, they're skipping the industrialized phase, many of them, and they're going straight to digital economies, unlocking tremendous economic value and growth. And digitization is obviously uh, what the tech industry is all about. And so now with this digitization wave that's been building for a while, accelerated by COVID uh, with mobile phones in everyone's hands, with payments increasingly digital, there's a revolution going on around the world. And now people are starting companies in Africa, in Asia, in Latin America, and they become very large very quickly and they're becoming very valuable. And so I think where we are today is there's tremendous value to be unlocked investing in these companies that are you know building the infrastructure to digitize and then building on top of yeah. it in these markets and they're you know there 300 million people in the us uh, but there are almost eight billion people around the world
0: i saw the stat um, i mean it's it's a little bit data from mckinsey it was something like 2018 but two-thirds of the global population will be coming from these uh growth growth markets right i remember some of the investors you know even the, the thought of using emerging markets um can be patronized to some people, you know, it's really global growth that we're continuing to see. Yeah. With digitization, right, there's always a need to understand uh, who exactly are going to be um, included in, in this digitization wave and uh, what does that look like? Are we looking at the cities? Are we looking at also the underbanks? Uh, paint a little bit of a picture for us
1: here. I think this is a key pillar of the story, which is population um, and demographics. So, If you look at the West now, the population is either flatlining or declining. And it's Mm -hmm. very difficult to grow an economy when your population is shrinking. Not only does the productivity have to increase dramatically, it's just very difficult. So you have these global growth markets, like Africa, for example, where there are a billion people today, there'll be 2 billion people by 2050. Uh, Even if productivity stays flat, the economy will be bigger because there's just more people. So These population sort of growth numbers, the youth of the population, these combine very well. For economic growth. And a young population is a population that will need lots of goods and services over time. If people are 18 or 20 now, they're going to need to buy a house, buy a car, educate, pay for their children, buy clothes. They're going to need to do all these things, right, if they can afford them. And so a country that's young is young in that consumer life cycle and that supports a large and diversified economy. And we're seeing that now, right? FinTech is obviously a very popular area overseas because most people are unbanked or underbanked. They need financial services. There's so many things you need financial services for. Um, and these populations are young. So if you can get a customer at 20, at 18 yeah. become a digital bank customer, you know, people don't change banks. That That's a customer for 50, 60, 70 years. Yeah. Um, and as a business, as a country that you really want to take advantage of that um, for logistics, you know, these huge countries, a lot of these like Africa, for example, is 14 hours across 14 hours, top to bottom uh, Asia, you know, is massive. Right? Indonesia has 17,500 islands, for example. The logistical complexities in the markets, everything is very analog. That needs to be digitized. So there's just opportunity at every level of these economies, supported by a growing and young population um, and you know, sort of rapid digitiz- digitization and a favorable cost structure. So the best entrepreneurs, I think, can unlock opportunities in these economies, and we're seeing it at every single level.
0: You, you speak to the trend of Mobile first and essentially leapfrogging, right? And and I think yeah. this is definitely a classic case in Africa where um you know the payment solutions were able to grow in that manner because there wasn't the middleman uh that you know more developed markets would have had you know and, and they were able to grow in that way. So what are you seeing from a leapfrogging uh perspective? You know um give give us some some examples here. No, the
1: payments one is a great example. M-Pesa is you know the best example of digital payments in the world, and it's you know an African product, an African company, an African story. Um, And I think it's 70% of Kenya's GDP flows through M-PESA, which is a ridiculous number when you really think about it. And, you know, people have probably tried Apple Pay and Google Pay. You know, it's not that much better than having a credit card, right? It's a little bit better. It's a little bit easier, but it's not that much better. So people haven't changed in the West because credit cards work fine. And, you know, people like to put their heavy credit card on the table and show that they've got an American Express or whatever, (laughs) but that's a different issue. Um, but in these markets, right, you don't have the, the credit card infrastructure built on the retailer side. You have very limited penetration, right? None of this stuff has been built. It takes a lot of effort. It's, you know, it's, there's a lot of fraud. It's a lot of pain. What they've done is they've just decided to leapfrog. And the good thing is, you know, almost everyone now, or most people have a mobile phone in their hand, now a lot of these countries have digital identity systems, right? So the government will maintain a digital identity system where you can verify an entity so they can say... You know, Mikhail has filled out an application. Let's hit the identity database of the government um, and let's verify. We'll match the photo. We'll match the ID number and say, okay, this person is this person. Um, And now um, increasingly, I think we will see sort of government-backed digital currencies um, built on top of that. So people have leapfrogged all of that infrastructure because it is expensive to build. And instead, Mm -hmm. you take a mobile phone, you give a retailer some method of processing payments, and there you go, right? There's very limited hardware, so it's cheaper. The deployment is fast. Um, you don't need too many people out there to do it. And they're young, it's easy to change behavior, right? Yeah. If the population is older. consumer
0: inertia. Mm.
1: Exactly. So young people, obviously digital native, tech native, um, and, you know, sort of hungry and eager to learn. And so we've seen the shift and it's happening everywhere. Bangladesh has Bcash, for example, yeah. um, and a few others. Huge segment Pakistan has Easy Pesa, Mo- uh, Jazz Cash, a couple of others. Um, so there are digital payment products everywhere, um, and all of them are growing, um, which is great.
0: yeah. so so I love that. But uh, again, you know, you picked on something that uh, fraud, you know the, the mention of fraud and emerging markets sometimes uh, can can bring about certain images, and, and that's always been the initial investor fear, right? Like, we don't know these markets. It's very corrupt. Uh, how, how do we even think about it? And even, I, I believe you wrote about Pakistan, right? I think the initial situation with Wall is real concern. How are you seeing, you know, the fear of political, geopolitical instability change, um, and how investors viewing, I guess, putting a risk premium? How do we? How do they think about the risk premium here?
1: Part of the arbitrage is that the risk involved um, across all levels. Those who fully understand the risk can make a lot of money doing this, and those who don't can lose a lot of money doing this. The problem historically on the public equity side has been money flowing from New York and London into these markets with limited understanding, and then some geopolitical thing happens or some political thing happens and the money comes out. So the flows in and out of equity markets, public equity markets is dramatic because people don't really fully understand what's going on in the ground. Now, increasingly, we're seeing... Uh, you know, public equity and even private market capital from the region or from near in the region, maybe from China, for example, that has a better understanding of the region and is not so uh, nervous. You know, some things will change, but they'll be uh, expected um, or something they can deal with. And so the money sort of stays. The risk is is absolutely there. But at the same time, my personal view is it's not um, instability that is a problem, it's volatility. So I think if you look at global business volatility is bad for business. When you don't know what's going to happen when things are very unpredictable, it's very safe and then very risky and very safe continuously, it's hard to plan for that. But when it's consistently unstable, then you plan for that. And one of my favorite examples is Shell in the Delta in Nigeria. It's very dangerous. The locals do not like that the oil companies are there. And yet they're still there, they're still doing business because they've planned for it. It's just consistently unsafe, so they have yeah. high fences, they have you know significant security. They've planned for it. It's not safe one week and risky the next week. And so big business still happens. Global business still happens, even in unstable environments. People instability is, you know, fairly common, protests and so on. And yet GDP is still going up and consumer spending is still going up. Because I think what a lot of people don't really understand is that life goes on. You know, still need to eat. People still need to work. Um, and so, you know, it's not everyone's not at, at home waiting out the storm. Life still goes on. And so you you have to just accept instability as part of the part of the sort of game of investing in these markets um, but that's also where the returns come from the alpha
0: the golden era of startups in asia is here asian startups have been making headlines in the last few years from creating the super app craze with meituan and Pinduoduo in china who will emerge as the winner
1: i think i'll keep it to to asia um just to, to narrow it down a little bit because uh, there are a lot of interesting companies out there um, Grab, I think, is my uh, favorite company in the region uh, for a lot of reasons. Um, I think next would be GoTo, which is a, sort of a direct competitor now with Grab, and a very unique business. And then maybe Bijus as the third one, which is an Indian edtech startup, very under the radar. I think not not very well known overseas, but a huge business pursuing a very global strategy. Um, and I think we'll get into it. But I think these three companies are all global champions in the making, or at least regional champions.
0: Uh, From a country standpoint as well?
1: Yeah, from a country standpoint, historically, China has been super exciting. um, But obviously, Mm -hmm. recently, uh, there's been some changes and the government has uh, changed its approach to technology. But also, to do business in China, you really have to know the market. You have to Mm. speak Mandarin. You have to know everyone. It's a completely different ballgame. It's much harder for outsiders to invest versus there are other countries in the region that are easier. So Indonesia, obviously, 270 million people growing rapidly young population and a lot of flagship tech companies that have uh, recently you know exited or about to exit in the public markets uh, that have become very large you know Pakistan I'm half Pakistani, 220 million people people compare it very much to Indonesia that's maybe five to seven years behind on that story but here is a huge country young population rising rapidly and there beat some important regulatory changes recently and then just a flood of capital in 2021. More capital so far this year than the previous five years combined. So definitely at an inflection point. And then Bangladesh, which is you know really an e- economic uh, growth story, almost a miracle over the last twenty years, just consistently five to seven percent growth, uh, export oriented economy. Um, the fiscal situation is great. The government is you know very uh, prudent. Um, One hundred sixty million people, and the country I also think is at a tipping point. It's a, it, it it so far hasn't had too many companies, but now. You can see an increase in activity, an increase in capital, um, and I think it just needs to be unlocked. Uh, and now, actually, Bangladesh is the richest country in South Asia uh, by GDP mm. per capita. So they just passed India this year. Obviously, discretionary income is critical to both you know business growth and economic growth, but also just addressable market.
0: Yeah. Love it. All right. Well, so let's dive very deeply now into the three companies. And and I know also, you know, part of the conversation here is, you know, you and I talk about this, like, are we seeing real innovation in, in Asia? And I think I, I like the way you've grouped it, which is uh, sure. We have a lot of copycats. Would, would you agree that we're still very dominant in the copycat category?
1: You know, the, the way I've sort of looked at it is there are three waves, right? Wave one, um, is the copycats. You take a business in the U.S. and increasingly China that consumers like, and you just copy it. You just say, we'll rip this off. That's how the Chinese tech industry started. Meituan, which is the food delivery leader, it was a Groupon clone. And there were 5,000 Groupon clones in China at the time. Literally 5,000 like clone wars, basically. And then Meituan won. So that's wave one. And so a lot of the companies that are exiting now are really copycats. Wave two is localization. You take that product, service, business in the West, and then you localize it. And we'll get into this. Grab is a good example. Um, Mm. You fit it to the market, you fit it to the consumer, and often you create either, you know, a different business model or a different product. And then wave three is global champions. That company then becomes a champion globally, expands around the world, outside of the region, um, displacing often Western companies. So a lot of copycats across all these markets, but increasingly those copycats are now localizing. So Grab, for example, it started as to be the Uber of sort of Malaysia, Indonesia, the region, right? Yep. Um, and really followed the playbook. Um, but the market was different and the re- the team recognized that. And so Grab was the first sort of ride share company to create a mobile money wallet. The reason is, you know, it was hard to accept payments. It was hard to do payments because of the nature of the region, right? This was, right. you know, six, seven years ago now. Um, and so the team recognized right. that and they added that mobile money wallet and that became Grab Financial. And now there are so many services in that, right? You can buy stocks. You can have a bank account. You could do all these things. Uh, and, and Grab and the Chinese companies, you know, Tencent, WeChat, someone really pioneered the super app trend. The idea that there's one app that can do it all. And that is something now that we see Uber copying. Every time I open Uber in the US, there's a new button, a different service. And depending on which city you're in, there's a different service too. I remember I came, went to Dallas, I think, earlier this year, and there was a vaccine button I'd never seen before. And then there was oh. a supermarket button i never seen. I do not know you could order from a supermarket, but, you know, there's the Uber credit card and all that. And so Uber is copying Grab now, right? The inspiration has reversed. Um, and that leads, I think, to global champions, right? So another one is Shopee, right? C in Southeast Asia, the public company. Like, they are quietly and aggressively expanding in Latin America. So Mexico, mm. Brazil, Colombia. Shopee is now the number one or two app on the in, the, in, e- in, e- in e-commerce on the App Store. Um, they've taken a playbook in Asia, and they're... Going to, to South America, they're skipping the West entirely. Um, yeah, and they're doing it right. Amazon is not doing what they're doing. That's a global champion in the making, um, and there are increasingly many more examples of that. I
0: so I'm curious as you look at let's let's work down the the list here. Let's start with Grab. What do you think was um, key in Grab's rise here? I mean, a lot of other players came into play, but they've really emerged. Uh, to be the robust player.
1: It's local entrepreneurs with local context that win, right? And and Grab is a great example of that. So Uber starts in San Francisco as a taxi competitor, essentially. We're going to get these nice private cars and you get in them and they'll come to you. And it's great. And, you know, in San Francisco and in the U.S. where the cities are structured around driving four-wheel vehicles, it fits perfectly. Um, Uber said, "Okay, we'll go global. Let's take this playbook to other parts of the world. Now, cities in the rest of the world, especially in Asia, are not structured around highways and motor vehicles. This is a very American thing. So it's not a, the best way to get around, usually, and it's expensive. And a lot of people don't have cars. So Uber went to the region and said, okay, we're going to do this. We're going to four-wheel vehicles. Everyone's going to love it. This is great. But that wasn't the best fit for the market. What Grab and Gojek have realized was that the two-wheel segment, the motorbike, is the dominant form of transport or the bus, right? But the bus doesn't really fit into this business uh, model, so they go for the motorbike early, and then they pull ahead of Uber. You know, it's cheaper to get around. It's easier to find drivers because there are more people with motorbikes, um, and it's easier sort of to move through the city because um, you can sort of get through the congestion. That's an early advantage. That's local context that these local entrepreneurs had that allowed them to pull ahead. And this is still the case, by the way, in Bangladesh. There's a company called Patel. Um, mm-hmm. And they're ride-sharing and food delivery company. They're the market leader in the two-wheel segment, motorbikes. Uber is the market leader in the four-wheel segment. So to this day, Uber still has the same paradigm about how to do this. That's one of the reasons that Grab has been able to pull ahead. They also just expanded very aggressively across the region, you know, five, six, seven countries very quickly, um, and then started moving into food delivery aggressively uh, into these other segments. And then I, I really think it's the mobile money wallet that unlocked sort of the flywheel for them um, mm. and has been powering their growth and is the next phase of their growth. So if you look at their investor presentation for their spec, grab financial group, which is their subsidiary. And that's the big story. It's digital banking, unbanked population, limited insurance, penetration, all this stuff we have. We are on everyone's mobile device. We will become everyone's you know, financial service. We will become the JP Morgan of the region. That's, this is the story they're hinting at. Um, yeah, this so, is not so, vision. Just-
0: yeah, so before you move into that, I'm curious because you know one of the key things as I was looking looking at their uh, presentation and the way you know you framed it, I think is spot on that um in many ways, right healing is an enabler to mm-hmm. the business because till till date, um, grab's not profitable, right? Um, they're yeah. still in the same conundrum that DoorDash and Uber was in. And uh, it seems that the, the financial aspect will be the uh gateway to that and and therefore creating a playbook almost that to succeed in places like asia you almost have have to be a super app what are your thoughts here
1: yeah no this is a great point you know uber is still not profitable and doordash and all these companies so we'll see yeah. we'll see if this business model even makes sense uh, at least with the writer involved right once it gets autonomous it, it looks a little different um mm-hmm. but grab is contribution positive in some of its markets so it, it, the model can't on the right sharing segment, so the model can work but i very much agree that it's a lost leader you know the super app trend is a very it's a very uniquely asian approach to doing this right and it, you know it's a the thesis of a super app is let's capture as much of a consumer's wallet as possible versus in uber's case there's like let's capture as much market share as possible let's be 100 mm-hmm. percent of the right sharing market they're not so concerned about you know some of these other markets medicine delivery for example or massages or something. You can actually get a massage on Grab. I remember I was in Thailand. You. I, was, I
0: didn't know that.
1: <laughs> I was looking, I was looking so at the app. I did not
0: know yeah. That.
1: So this is a super, I was looking at the app and said massages and like, massages. I don't know who could do this. So and okay. there, there were like 17 different random services. So <laughs> they're trying to capture as much of my daily spend as possible. Works well because in most of the world, the mobile device is the only electronic device people have. It's the only way they have to access digital services. It's the only way they have to access digital financial services. So if you can get their attention, if you can be on their home screen, then it's very easy to upsell them, right? If you're using the right sharing product frequently, um, you can start adding other services versus Uber or the US or Europe. There's so many services. There's so many competitors. It's so hard to break out through the noise.
0: These are interesting points and some of the wins that Grab is moving towards. Um, as you analyze, and I'm thinking about many of the investors here who are looking at new businesses, right, evaluating and, and looking at the path that Grab took, what, what do you think were some of their mistakes that they made early on uh, that, you know, they recovered from or, or not?
1: I mean, in Indonesia, they quickly lost ground to Gojek, right? Indonesia is mm. probably the most promising country in Southeast Asia and Gojek, now goto. Is the market leader in Indonesia, so I think their mistake, or maybe you know, just GoTo's incredible execution, was to lose that market. Essentially, um, they're dominant in the other markets in the region, right? Vietnam, Thailand, Malaysia, all great markets, but Indonesia is the real prize, right? Two hundred seventy million people, growing very rapidly. So I think, in my opinion, their mistake was not to invest more into that market um, mm. and to become the market leader there, because Gojek is now. A very serious competitor right in indonesia it's going to be very hard for them to displace them it's gonna be very expensive for them to displace them so really in indonesia the chance of them becoming a market leader is probably zero now um unless something dramatic happens to goto so i think that was a mistake and i think it's an irreversible mistake at this point
0: yeah and, and going to GoTo, i mean you, you touched upon them uh, you know a little bit recently uh with regard to the merger and uh, you know, the, we call it the Raksasa, right? The monster behemoth that they will soon become. What are your thoughts there on this? You know, is this a, a smart marriage or is this a marriage of convenience?
1: I think to our point about localization, right? This is a beautiful example because there's no equivalent of this business, I think, anywhere in the world, especially in the West. So it's a merger of Gojek and Tokopedia. And that's basically the merger of Amazon with Uber, right? And there's no equivalent of that. So, Go- GoJek is a ride sharing food delivery super app right for Indonesia and then Tokopedia is an e-commerce marketplace very much like Amazon um and they've put it they've been put together and it's created this you know monster uh, to use your term which has very sophisticated logistical infrastructure right you have GoJek you have riders you have delivery guys across Indonesia and you have a huge consumer base and you have this range of services in that super app and you marry that with an e-commerce marketplace with millions of merchants, you know, tens of millions of products and huge GMV. And you put them together and say, you know, you know, the, the whole is sort of more than the sum of its parts. So this this is a very localized business. There's nothing like it anywhere else in the world. And they've brought to you know they've sort of merged because they're competing with Grab and they're competing with C with Shopee, right? You so you have this these three massive companies with Billions of dollars, at, you know, in capital that are now duking it out in the region because Indonesia is a big prize. Indonesia is a big prize, and so they're all fighting for market share there. Um, so, for example, grab spec the the pipe, the sort of capital they're getting as part of the spec. They're getting four billion dollars. It's a lot of money. Four billion dollars to build a war chest to you know sort of punch GoTo in the face and see in the face until to grab market share.
0: So now we go into a a more interesting uh, phenomenon that's happening uh, where we're bringing Bollywood uh, to the education Mm -hmm. space. Uh, Another interesting company that you and I looked at, Baidu, by Baidu Ravindran himself. And I found out actually, I'm sure you know the story. He was a math Olympiad, right? So he he wanted to name the company after himself. And I also realized that one of the uh, sell factors was the fact that Cheryl Khan is the ambassador. So, so tell us about yeah. what you're seeing and, and why, why Baiju is exciting for you.
1: Yeah. Again, a, very much a product of the country it was born in, right? India obviously is a country where academics is very highly valued. Um, it's a big part of the culture. Achievement is a big part of the culture. And that's why, you know, the Indian diaspora has done very well from the parents that's in the children. That it's just part of the culture. Right. And so, Something like Biju's does very well in a society where academics is so highly valued. And so Bijou's is just sort of digitizing the tutoring experience and creating all this content for students to learn on their own. And because they're self-driven very much in India, you know, not everyone, but there are a lot of them that are self-driven. It's a perfect combination. And so Bijou's has 80 million users, $800 million run rate, $16.5 billion valuation. This is an ed tech startup. This is the biggest ed tech startup in the world. And now they're doing, yeah, by far, by far really built on the back of this massive population in India of students. Uh, And now what they're doing is they're becoming a global ed tech roll-up. So they're buying ed tech startups left, right, and center um, because their cost of capital is lower, right? Because they're such a big business. They're able to raise capital at a lower cost than smaller competitors. And now they're just buying businesses. They're expanding into the West. So this is a global champion in the making, I think. This is an ed tech business that has an advantage because it's dominant in India. Its team is in India. It's much cheaper to You know, have a team in India, and now they're aggressively expanding to the west, where people can afford to pay more. Our run rate is that's that's a serious business. I mean, Swivel, which just went public in a spec, their revenue in twenty twenty it was twenty six million. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you can go public with a revenue of twenty six million these days. So, imagine if you go public with revenues of eight hundred million or a billion.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's one to watch. So, if again, you know, in in similar sort of breakdown fashion, if you look at how Baidu had had expanded and had grown. What was right in their strategy there?
1: Producing content is very cheap, obviously, in India. Mm. Um, there are a lot of professors. There are a lot of students. And, you know, it does not cost that much to make a video. Um, so that that's an advantage. And then you have this massive population. So th- these are just, I think, fortunate factors. Being able to build a user base and then run lots of experiments. So if you actually look at the application experience, it's hyper-personalized. They gather lots of data yeah. on you as a student. Um, For example, like, how long is it taking you to do this? Which questions are you stuck on? How often are you coming back to it? All these little data points feed into an algorithm that hyper-personalizes your experience. So my experience studying calculus will be different than yours based on whatever I'm struggling with. And so they create this very unique path for you as a student to go through, which, in theory, helps you learn better, scaffolds you. It it stops you from facing that problem where you get stuck and you give up, right? That's a big problem uh, as a student. And so... During the pandemic, at least students were spending 100 minutes per day wow. on the app, which is a lot, right? That's, you know, yeah. some people spend that much time usually on Netflix as opposed to just learning. So, yeah, I was
0: just going to say, you know, this is like a Netflix edtech tech version, hyper-personalized and day, and, right? I mean, you look at gaming is another huge thing, but how can we implement and create that stickiness in education, which is so important? And I think Baidu has done that in some way.
1: Absolutely. I think that's the magic is that personalization engine. Because we've all taken a a MOOC, right? A massive open online course on Coursera or whatever. It's the same. Everyone does exactly the same thing. It's lesson one, lesson two, lesson three. Even if you don't understand lesson three, you just go to lesson four. And eventually you give up because the completion rate is like 3% for these MOOCs. So a lot of people have sold this vision of personalized education. right? You've heard it so many times from so many people. It feels like these guys are the first ones to really do it at scale.
0: Wrapping up to um, the exit story, it seems like America, listing America, doing a back, these are the exit options. What What are your thoughts here?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think five, 10 years ago, what everyone said is, you know, this is great. It's growing. But where are the exits? You know, who's going to buy this? That's what people said over and over again about emerging markets. Now, I think that a question is being answered. And in three months, it will be fully answered. Um and we've had a few examples over the past few years. So Jumia in Africa, which is a rocket internet company, they're Amazon of Africa, not the whole region, but countries in the region. They went public in New York. And depending on the week, because it's very volatile, it's between three to $5 billion market cap. So the market is supporting a multi-billion dollar company, right, the public markets. There's enough investor appetite to support that. But you don't have to go public in New York to do that. There's a company in Egypt called Fawry, which is sort of a payment processor fintech business. They went public on the Egyptian stock exchange only. And the market is supporting a $2 billion market cap. That's pretty substantial because the Egyptian stock exchange is not the biggest or deepest in the world. Now, if they had listed in New York, I think they would be two, three, four or five times as valuable. So you see a lot of companies overseas listing in New York or London or you know maybe Hong Kong. Um, that'll probably tail off for other reasons because the equity markets are just broader and deeper and investors have appetite. That was a question. Do investors have appetite for these money losing tech companies overseas? And the, qu- the answer is yes. Grab forty billion dollar, you know, uh, market cap, or at least that was the spec merger agreement. I think it's gone down a little bit since then. Forty billion dollars, one point six billion in revenue in twenty twenty. So twenty five x revenue multiple. Uh, Swivel is even more dramatic, and this is just this week. One point five billion dollar merger deal, twenty six million in revenue in twenty twenty. That's a fifty seven x right Mo- revenue multiple. Credivo, which uh, FinxL just happened this week by an appeal letter, um, two point five billion dollar market cap or merger agreement, seventy four million in revenue in twenty twenty. That's a thirty three x so revenue multiple. These are very aggressive revenue multiples. Um, so far, the market is supporting them. Um, we'll see what happens over time, but the market certainly has appetite for these money losing businesses in the U.S. You know, it's different. It's a different kind of exposure because asset managers need to diversify, right? That's that's they have the stable stuff. They have the tech stuff, the TMT. They have all the stuff, and then they allocate to alternative alternatives, right? And so, this emerging markets overseas stuff is is a way for them to diversify um, and get a bit of that magic of huge population growth, uh, you know, rapidly growing economies, that kind of thing. Like China's economy since 1980, the GDP has gone up 75x, and Indi- in India's economy has gone up. I think it was 15x. Right. In in just about 40 years. Right. The U.S. economy has not gone up 75 X since 1980. Right. And so, yeah, that's what investors want exposure to. And these companies, these tech companies that are indexes often on 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 large markets or consumer behaviors are a great way to get that exposure. Now, the question is, can they get to profitability? Um, But a lot of U.S. tech companies have not answered that question either. So to me, it's not a big concern.
0: What are you, as we look out now, what are you most excited by um, in the next six to 12 months here?
1: I am very excited to see Goto go public um, and get firepower. Because obviously when you're public, your cost of capital is much lower than as a private company. You're able to raise debt much more easily. You can use your stock as a weapon, right? Square has just bought Afterpay using stock. So now we can see a lot more of that. And this is a good thing because all these public tech companies in the region are going to become acquirers of early stage companies. So as an investor investing in seed and series a, that gives me confidence that maybe goto will buy my company. I don't have to Mm -hmm. wait for Google or Facebook, you know, maybe grab will buy my company, maybe credivo will buy my fintech business. So the universe of acquirers is growing very rapidly overseas. We don't have to rely on Western or Chinese companies anymore. Only we have local companies. And so it's just a better time to be a venture capital investor in the region. I think it's the start of, hopefully, you know, great 20 years. Love it.
0: Well, Mikal, this was excellent. We will be having more of this, you know, breaking down different businesses and maybe Mikal might be coming back. So thanks everyone for tuning in. Be sure to share, like, and subscribe and we will be back next week. Thanks, Mikal.
1: Thanks for having me.